church, you can take a seat. Good morning, Life Church. Yeah, that's great. It's good when you participate. Thank you for that. Um, welcome to worship with us this morning. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the elders here. I'm also on the staff at Life Church, and I'm excited that we get to open the Word of God together. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. If you have a Bible with you or when you want to use the Bible that's on the chair next to you, you can go ahead and find that. We're also on the Bible app. You can click on events and you'll find us pretty quickly if you want to track with us on your device. Um, I need to say two things that really don't belong over here with that. And so just to help me, I'm going to come stand over on this part of the stage for a minute um, and give you those two pieces of information and then I'll go back there when it's time uh, to get serious. So um, first of all, uh, because uh, we're new here, um, a lot of us have Uh, or a lot of you have talked to us about where we've come from and what it's like to settle into North Carolina. And because we've come from the frozen tundra that is the Midwest and Nebraska in particular, a lot of you have um, assumed that the Sharp family is responsible for the cold weather that we are presently experiencing. And I'm very deliberate in cold weather because I was outside in shorts yesterday. This is, this is not winter, in case you were unaware of that. And so um, I just wanted to kind of address those concerns that you've had head on. Um, some of you assume that this is what we have brought with us and that it's our desire for you to suffer through this brutal North Carolina winter. And I'll just say to you that you're welcome to lay the cold weather on my shoulders when I am welcome to lay liver mush on your shoulders. <laughs> and so you can, you can start complaining about the cold when we can have an honest conversation about whatever that is that you're eating. And so um, I don't know what it is. I don't want to know what it is. And we're just going to keep it there. But that is one thing that I felt like I needed to address. The second thing, and it's in a similar vein, um, I just have to apologize because last week I made a promise that I'm not going to deliver on today. Last week, um, I made some critical comments about uh, a university basketball team that wears powder blue, Um, and I promised that I would make up for that today by making critical comments about a university basketball team that wears a slightly deeper blue in our state, and I'm not going to do that. And the reason is because the honest truth is, since about 1992, I've been a little bit of a Duke basketball fan, and I have, uh, well, thank you, I appreciate that. So I've not wanted to share that information because I wasn't sure what would happen to me if I did. But enough of you were excited about my critical comments about UNC basketball last week that I felt like I had some safety in numbers here. And so I know who I'm going to come stand next to if I get beat up in the parking lot later. Um, But anyway, so that's really all. And you can see why I wanted to stand over here and now um, come back over here when we're going to do something that's a little bit more um, serious and true to the purpose of our gathering this morning. Yeah, we are here to be in and to hear from the word of God And so to that end, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1. I hope you had a chance to find that. Um, There's something I would like you to know about me. As we're in this uh, relationship where we're getting to know one another and uh, where you're trying to get a feel for who I am and what's important to me and what my personality's like and those kinds of things. And even as my family and I are in a place where we're trying to figure out life church and get to know like how we're going to fit into this body that the Lord has called and created. Um, I think it's important for you to know right at the beginning of that, that my resume um, is not particularly impressive. Like if you were to sum up everything that I've accomplished 
everything that I've been a part of, everything that I've done in my life and with my life. And if you were to try to define James Sharp by the kinds of things that you can put on a piece of paper, like I just think it's important that you know that that's not a particularly impressive piece of paper. I did not attend or graduate from an Ivy League school. I have never been the founder or CEO or visionary of a company. I don't sit on any boards, and I am the trustee of nothing more than my own personal possessions. I didn't start a nonprofit that is changing the world. I don't hold any honorary degrees. I was not named most likely to succeed in high school. I've never been on anyone's most influential or most successful or most attractive list. I have not written a best-selling book. I have given no TED Talks. I do not charge an exorbitant hourly fee for my consulting services. I have been the keynote speaker at a major conference less than one time. (laughs) No buildings, streets, or libraries have ever been named after me. And I come from an unimpressive family background, meaning I'm one of many of a long line of unimportant people. So if you put everything about me on one piece of paper, I'm keenly aware of the fact that that piece of paper wouldn't impress anyone. It doesn't impress me, frankly. And I'm aware of the fact that it doesn't impress God either. And I wonder as you sit here today, um, if you might also think that your piece of paper is unimpressive. Now, so there's probably an exception in the room, right? I mean, there are probably some of us who have done some really remarkable and noteworthy things, but my guess is that the vast majority of us, if not all of us, we would acknowledge that our piece of paper, our personal resume, is not a particularly impressive thing. And so there's no queue of people waiting to write our biographies, When we die, our obituaries probably won't appear in the New York Times, and I'm not sure that anyone will call a national day of mourning or fly a flag at half-mast when we pass away. And what I really hope to impress upon you this morning as we gather here is that that is absolutely okay. In fact, I want to liberate you from the pressure that you and all of us feel to be somebody. I want to liberate you from the pressure that you feel to be impressive. And I want you to instead embrace a very unimpressive life, the life of a nobody, the life of a fool, a life of weakness. Because as we'll see in this passage that we read this morning, that is exactly the kind of life that God uses for his glory and to accomplish his purposes in the world. That's the heart First Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Let's read this together, then I'll pray for us, and we'll sit under this passage together this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning, church. Let's pray now as we approach the Lord. Father, we thank you for the fact um, that these words are true. We thank you for the fact that we need not be impressive people uh, to be loved by you or used by you. We thank you for the fact that you have worked in the world and in our lives in such a way that you saved us when we were weak and vulnerable and foolish. And we pray that we would come to a place of of peace and joy as we understand that today. And then we pray, Lord, that we would come to a place where we can be used by you for all that you've purposed in our lives. We pray that today in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. So I said last week, we're spending just a couple weeks at the end of 1 Corinthians and beginning, uh, end of 1 Corinthians 1, beginning of 1 Corinthians 2, as we get started together here. And I said, as I introduced that last week, that the church in Corinth is a complete and total mess when the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to them. They have Judge Judy kind of problems. And what I mean by that is that there's like incest and broken marriages and frivolous lawsuits being thrown back and forth between the people in this church. And Paul, he writes to address all of those issues. But it's very telling to me and striking that the first issue he addresses, before he addresses those kinds of things, is he addresses disunity in the church body in Corinth. He writes to speak to that and to show the Corinthians how to walk forward in unity. In our passage this morning, I think we can see that he speaks to three different things that build unity in a church. He builds unity in Corinth and among us by reminding the Corinthians and us of who they were. Then he builds that unity by reminding the Corinthians of what God did. And then he builds unity by reminding them why God did it. And so he calls them to consider who they were, what God did, why God did it. Let's look at each of those things as, as quickly as I can with you this morning. Let's start with this call to consider who the Corinthians were. We see that in verse 26. Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Consider the condition that you were in when the Lord called you and saved you. He says, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And so Paul, he's asking the Corinthians to remember the condition of their lives, the condition of their hearts, the condition of their souls when the Lord reached into their lives to save them. And his point is that when God did that, the Corinthians were a bunch of nobodies. They were nothing special. Not many of them, he says, were powerful. Not many of them were of noble birth. Not many of them were wise. And of course, there is a big difference between saying not many of them and not any of them were those things. So he leaves open the possibility that some in the church in Corinth were wise according to worldly standards and powerful and from noble families. But the bigger point that he's making is that the vast majority of the Corinthian believers were a bunch of nobodies. And so he's saying to these Christians, Christians, God didn't save you because you were impressive. He didn't save you because of anything that was on your personal resume. He didn't save you because of your spiritual track record. He didn't save you because he thought that you would enhance the church's reputation. 
No, in fact, the opposite of that was true. It's interesting, if you read in history, you read that uh, the reputation of the Christian church in the first couple hundred years after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus was just terrible. I mean, people thought that Christians were fools. And anytime they described Christians, they described them in very unflattering terms. And so knowing that, you might think that God would respond to that by, by saving some people who were impressive. You might think that he'd respond by saying, okay, in Corinth, man, the church has this terrible reputation. I should save some movers and shakers so that they will start to change the story about who the church is. But that's just simply not how God worked. He saved fools. He saved people who were unimpressive. He saved people who didn't have spiritual resumes that added up to anything or cultural resumes that added up to anything. He didn't save people who looked good. No, he saved people who were the opposite. And it's, that's stunning. So this is, I just wanted to share this with you because I thought it shows us Paul's point so clearly. Um, there was a Roman orator named Celsus, and you don't have to care who he is at all, but he was not a believer Um, But he did, a couple of years after Paul, write about the Christian church. And I just want you to listen to what he says, because he he illustrates Paul's point here just so perfectly. So he's impersonating the invitation that Christians would offer to become a Christian. And he says, as he impersonates that, let no cultured person draw near, none wise and none sensible. For all that kind of thing we count evil. But if any man is ignorant... If any man is wanting in sense and culture, if anybody is a fool, let him come boldly. So it's not a very flattering picture that Celsus has of Christians. And he goes on just to clarify that with his own comment. He says, we see them, Christians, in their own houses, wool dresses, cobblers, the worst, the vulgarest, the most uneducated persons. Listen to this. He says, they are like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, of frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms covered in mud. What a flattering, no, what an unflattering picture he paints of believers. But that's exactly the kind of reputation that Christians had in the world at the time that Paul was writing these things. Celsus is confirming what Paul says. The Christians, they were a bunch of nobodies. They were like A swarm of bats or a frog symposium, whatever that would be, right? Worms covered in mud. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were influential, Paul is saying. He's reminding them they're a bunch of nobodies. That's who they were. What did God do with this bunch of nobodies? That's the second thing Paul says. He begins to speak to that in verse 27. He says, though you were nobodies... God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Now, in the world's eyes, strength is strength. Weakness is weakness. Wisdom is wisdom. But what Paul is saying here is that in God's eyes, what seems strong is actually weakness. What seems wise 
is actually foolish. And what seems weak, namely the outcast and the poor and those who are, he says, low and despised, they are the ones who are strong. Because God, in saving his people, has turned the way the world works completely upside down. Right? He didn't choose people who, were, who seemed like good choices. Like he didn't choose people who had these impressive spiritual resumes. He didn't look for people who had a lot of influence or huge social media followings. And so in other words, as God sought to build his kingdom, he did not seek out the Tim Tebow's and the Kanye West's of the day. No, he sought out those who were weak and lowly and despised. He chose nobodies. He said, nobodies are the kind of people that make it into my kingdom. And people who are somebody like Tebow or Kanye, they can get in too, but only when they renounce their somebodiness, only when they recognize the fact that everything about them that the world considers good, then when they consider that that doesn't make them good in God's eyes, only when they recognize that in God's eyes they too are nobodies can they make it into God's kingdom. Because God chooses those who are weak and lowly and foolish precisely because they are weak and lowly and foolish. And that just begs the question, why in the world would God do that? Why in the world would God work that way? Why would he prefer weakness over strength and folly over wisdom and people who are unimpressive over those who are impressive? Well, Paul tells us why. Verse 29, he says, God's done that so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then just to reiterate that point, he actually makes his whole argument again in verses 30 and 31. He says, because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, and this is Jeremiah 9, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, God didn't choose to save you because you were impressive. He didn't save you because you were awesome. He saved you because he is awesome. And he saved you in such a way that no one will ever stand before the throne of heaven and pat themselves on the back. Right in that moment when we're standing before the holy throne of heaven, face to face with God and Jesus our Savior, empowered by his spirit, in that moment we will not stick out our chests with pride because we made a good spiritual decision at some point in our lives. And none of us will look back on our spiritual resumes and think that they are worth anything or impressing anyone. And because God didn't save us because of who we are, he saved us because of who he is. And so the gospel is not the good news that Jesus saves those who are in the process of getting their act together. The gospel is not the good news that Jesus saves those who have contributed 50% of what's necessary to the equation and he just comes in and contributes the other 50%. The gospel is not the good news that God helps those who are in the process of helping themselves. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saved people who were still in the process of rebelling against him. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saved the very kind of people who nailed him to the cross on which he died to pay the penalty for our sin. The gospel is the good news that people who were against God became friends of God, not because of anything in them, but entirely because of the grace that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. 
that even though we continue to stumble after he saved us, he keeps on loving us. He keeps on keeping us in relationship with him, though we continue to make a mess of our own lives and that very relationship. There's this Salvation Army worker who had a really significant influence in his life, um, though his name isn't recorded in this story. And it's told that he was asked to give his testimony basically on his deathbed. He was asked to share the story of his life and how he had came to know the Lord, come to know the Lord. And these are his words. He said, I deserve to be damned. I deserve to be in hell. But God interfered. And I just want you to know that if you are a Christian today, that is your story. That is my story. And there is no room in that story for pride. There's no room in that story for us to boast in ourselves. There's no room in that story for us to do anything other than glory in the cross by which we are saved. This is why God chose to save the lowly and the weak and the broken so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, in his wisdom, God has chosen to work in such a way that he gets all the glory. And our response, what we do in the face of that, we're to boast in the Lord and not in ourselves. Now, that leaves us with the question, what will that look like? What will it mean for us to boast in the Lord? And what will our lives be shaped like? And how will they be directed if we are devoting ourselves to boasting in the Lord and not in ourselves? And with the time that I have left, I'm going to give us three pictures of that. Three illustrations of what your life will look like as you boast in the Lord and not in yourself. And then I'll make sure at each point to to kind of extend that picture of your life to our life together as a church. So here's the first, the first point. Boasting in the Lord only means living a life of humble gratitude. Right? Boasting only in the Lord means living a life of humble gratitude. So a person who boasts in himself lives a life of proud entitlement. Like he walks through life thinking that everything he has, he has earned by his hard work and his talent and his effort. He walks through life bitter when he doesn't get from people or from life what he thinks that he actually deserves. And he expects people to treat him the way that he believes he deserves to be treated. When he doesn't get the life that he expects to get, the life that he feels entitled to, he responds to that in all sorts of negative ways. He's harsh, he's demanding, he's impatient with people, he's critical of people. And all of that comes out of the fact that he believes deep in his heart of hearts that his personal resume entitles him to a certain kind of life. Right? He b- believes he deserves a certain quality of life because of the person that he is on the inside. This is the life of a person who boasts in himself. But a person who boasts in the Lord recognizes that everything she has is a gift from God. 
She understands that she was so vile and gross in her sin that Christ had to die for her. There was no other way for her to be saved other than for the Son of God to die. And so because she recognizes that, she is profoundly humble. But she also knows that she's so loved by the Father in Christ that she is profoundly grateful as well. She recognizes, yes, Jesus had to die for me, but Jesus chose to die for me. And so that produces in her a humble gratitude. A person who boasts only in the Lord, she recognizes that everything she has in life comes to her from the Father. Her gifts, her talents, her relationships, her possessions, her position in life, and even the very breath in her lungs, all of these things are gifts of God to her. She knows that she deserves none of them. She knows that all of them are grace, and that makes her humble and grateful. And I just want you to imagine what it would look like, how, how a person's relationships would change if they really lived a life marked by humble gratitude. Right? If, if humble gratitude came to characterize you, just think about how your relationships would change for a minute. See, most of us, we don't realize this, but most of us, our relationships are performance-oriented. And that's because, by nature, we are performance-oriented. We tend to think that you get what you deserve, and whatever good things you have, you've earned for yourself. And so we need to continue to earn good things for ourselves. And so we we think that our own lives are performance-oriented, and then we extend that to our relationships. And so most of us, unless the Holy Spirit's working, most of us will be in relationships with people only so long as those people perform for us the way that we expect them to. In other words, they have to contribute to the relationship according to the standard that we feel like we deserve. That's just the reality of people who boast in themselves. We have this sort of performance-oriented way of looking at ourselves and our relationships. But when we recognize that we should boast only in the Lord, and when humble gratitude starts to characterize who we are and how we live, then the vertical reality of the gospel starts to change all of our horizontal realities. Like the fact that this isn't built on my performance, but is instead built entirely on the grace of God, begins to change the way that I relate to all of these other people in my life. Specifically, when my relationship with God isn't performance-oriented, then I'm free not to like force other people into performance-oriented relationships with me. I'm not expecting them to to deliver up to my expectations in order to stay in relationship with me. I'm not expecting them to perform at a certain standard so that we can be in relationship with one another. And so that's why people who live in humble gratitude, I mean, you know how hard it is to be an impatient parent when your heart is characterized by humble gratitude? Do you know how hard it is to be a critical, unforgiving spouse? when your heart is characterized by humble gratitude? Do you know how hard it is to be a selfish, self-centered coworker or friend or child or parent when your heart is characterized by humble gratitude? See, humble gratitude, this vertical reality, it reshapes all of those horizontal realities. Just think about the last time you walked through some significant relational conflict, the last argument you had with your spouse or your child or your parent, the last time you really got into it with somebody. Just ask yourself as you think back to that, did I respond to that person 
the way that God in Christ has responded to me? Or did I hold that person accountable to some standard that I'm glad I'm not really held accountable to myself? See, most of us, we relate to people in this sort of performance-oriented way. But when we boast in the Lord, we realize we aren't performing. And so we don't expect other people to perform. Humble gratitude then extends to our relationships with one another. And before I move on from that, just think about that with respect to life church for a minute. Like, do you know how hard it is to be a divisive church member when your heart is characterized by humble gratitude? Do you know how hard it is for a community to be divided when everyone in that community is shaped by humble gratitude in the Lord? When our hearts are more gripped by our gratefulness for what the Lord has done for us than they are by our frustration or disappointment with one another, then the unity and the peace and the love that will flow out of that will glorify Jesus. Won't you pray with me that we would grow in humble gratitude like that? That's the first illustration of what it looks like to live boasting in the Lord and not in yourself. Here's the second one. Boasting only in the Lord means living a life of honest vulnerability. Honest vulnerability. People who boast in themselves can't be honest about themselves. Everything depends on their spiritual resume, and so they live life in fear of being found out. They live life in fear of people discovering who they really are, and as a result of that, their relationships with, it, with others, they're one of two things. They're either fake or they're incomplete. And so either they, they live life with people wearing a mask, faking some measure of performance that they're not actually achieving, or they conceal a massive part of their lives from other people because they don't want anybody to know how weak and vulnerable and broken and messy they really are. And so people who boast in themselves, they can't ever know people, and they can't ever really be known by people. But people who boast in the Lord, and only in the Lord, they are free to acknowledge their own weaknesses. And they actually welcome people who will lovingly speak into their weaknesses because that's another opportunity then for them to boast in the Lord by growing in their appreciation of his grace. People who boast only in the Lord feel safe acknowledging their shortcomings and their struggles. People who boast only in the Lord, they don't feel like they need to keep up appearances before others. Their relationships are real because they're not wearing any masks. People who boast only in the Lord can share their burdens with others because they don't feel like they have to pretend that everything's okay. And that actually equips them to be people who then share other people's burdens well. People who boast only in the Lord can care well for other people because they care more about those people than they do about keeping up their own appearances. I just want you to think about what your life would be like if you could be that honest with folks. If you could be that real. If you could be that vulnerable. And then I want you to think about what life church would be like if we were as a church notorious for how open and honest we are with one another. I mean, think about what life church would be like if we were notorious for our vulnerability before one another. 
If the people of Salisbury knew that this is a place where we were real, where we were transparent, where we were not afraid to reveal to one another who we really are, and where we loved one another in that space of who we really are. I mean, think about what Life Church would be like if confession, that's where I tell you about my struggles, or rebuke, where you talk to me about my struggles, if those things were a real and present part of our life. I mean, just think about what Life Church would be like if we were notorious for our honest vulnerability. Don't you realize you need that? Like, don't you realize we need those kinds of relationships where we can be the messes that we are? I mean, I guess I'm saying these things. I shouldn't assume. Like, you do realize that you're a mess, right? Like, you walked in these doors this morning. Maybe you were hoping nobody else would discover that, but at least you were honest enough with yourself to recognize, yeah, I am a mess, because you are. Everything about you, friends, apart from the grace of Jesus at work in you, everything about you is messy. So messy that even the very good things that you do, the religious things, the moral things, the kind things, the generous things, all of those things are so so shot through with broken, messy motives that they are in and of themselves broken. That's why the prophet Isaiah says that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to the Lord. Because the Lord sees what we do and he doesn't care about what we do. He cares about the heart that's inside of that and he recognizes that our hearts are messy and broken. That's you, that's me, that is all of us. But if you're in Christ, you don't have to pretend to be otherwise. And imagine what our church would be like if we recognized that and we just lived in that. We leaned into how messy and broken we truly are. And I recognize that that'll never happen. Like if, if you don't see that I recognize that in myself. And so one thing I really need you to know today as we think about this and as we think about the lay of the ward works in this. Friends, I need you to know that James Sharp is a complete and total mess. I mean, like every impulse in me right now is to try to to be impressive to you, right? Every impulse in me is to put my best foot forward and to try to win you over by how confident or competent I seem. Every impulse in me wants me to make you think that I really have my act together and that our church is therefore in capable hands under my teaching and under my leadership. Friends, I need you to know that that is just simply not the truth. Right? I am a weak man. I am an insecure man. And I am filled with grief and self-doubt over my many, many, many failures in life. My hope is not in me. My only hope is that the Lord has made me this way so that I can boast in him and not in myself. My only hope is that it is okay for me not to be okay because Jesus Christ is my righteousness. Is that a hope that you know this morning? Because when you know that hope, when you really know it, it's a hope that that changes who you are and allows you to walk in an honest vulnerability before others. Wouldn't it be incredible if we were notorious for that honest vulnerability? Here's the last illustration of boasting only in the Lord this morning. Boasting only in the Lord means living a life of empowered ministry. 
One of Satan's most effective lies in your life and in mine is the lie that you have to be competent for God to use you. It's the lie that you have to measure up if God is going to be able to do anything with you in your life. It's the lie that you have to have your act together if God has a purpose for you. I want you to listen this morning, friends. God is far more eager to work through your weakness than through your strength. He is far more eager to work through your limitations than through your competencies. He's far more eager to build his kingdom on the back of our deficiency rather than on our self-sufficiency. And so I think if that's true, then whenever you feel weakest and wherever you feel weakest, that actually then means that's the place where God is most intent on using you. Right, the place where you feel like, I can't do it, that's where God says, I'm going to have you do it. The place where you feel like, I'm not enough, God's going to say, but I am enough. And so that area of your life where the task before you feels impossible and insurmountable, and you look at yourself and you say, God, there's no way I can do that. He says, absolutely, but I can. And so he's there in that space. Wherever you are weakest, that's the place where he's most eager to use you, to show up to reveal his glory, and to demonstrate his power through you. Kristen and I, we have some dear friends who have served in Miyazaki, Japan for 40 years. They've been missionaries on the field in Japan for almost as long as I've been alive, which is sobering to think about. And Al and Rhonda are two of the dearest, sweetest, most sincere and gentle people we have ever met. And we just, we just love them so much and admire them so much. But... Um, I say that, like, there has been almost nothing apparently successful to come from their long labor in Japan. Like, they've been there for 40 years, and, you know, there's never been a year where in their annual report they've sent home to their supporters and said, look at all these incredible things that God did in and through our ministry this year. Now, there there are reasons for that. I think the Japanese culture is probably the most resistant culture on the face of our planet to the truth of the gospel. I pray that you'll pray for the Japanese as well as for our friends in light of that. But it's just been a long, tedious, hard labor for Al and Rhonda where they serve. One year, I was visiting with Al, and uh, we were just talking about that, talking about the fact that he was discouraged, rightly so, because they hadn't really seen you know, incredible results from all of their sweat and all of their blood and all of their tears and all of their prayers. Um, and I said, Al, like, why do you keep doing this? I mean, I want to give up if something's hard after 40 minutes. You've been here for 40 years. Why do you keep doing this? And he looked at me and he said, James, there was a long time when, when we really begged God to send us home. There was a long time when we looked at what was happening here and we just thought, God, you'd, why do you want us to do this? And, and in that time, I, I was just in the word and I was praying and I was regularly asking God those questions. And there was a day when I, was, when I was in prayer, and I heard in my heart a still, small voice, and I was sure it was the Lord. And he said to me, Al, I sent you to Japan because you're the weakest person I could find. And when I heard that, I knew I had to stay because God works not through strength, but through weakness. His power is revealed. His kingdom is built in the way that he gets the glory, not us. And so he doesn't want our competencies. He doesn't want our sufficiencies. He doesn't want our strength. He wants us to come before him and recognize that we boast only in the Lord and not in ourselves.
What's keeping you from that this morning? Pray with me, church. Father, we ask that you would help us to rightly recognize our weakness and our brokenness and our messiness before you. And recognizing those things, I pray, God, that you would then lead us to boast in you, to recognize that that it's only your power that we need, it's only your power that your church needs, to recognize that we bring nothing to the table, nothing to this equation, that you provide everything that's necessary. And recognizing those things, Lord, then I pray that you would help us to see the places where we are weakest, where you can be strong. And I pray that you'd move us to lean into those things, mindful not of our power, not of our strength, not of our gifts, but only of our need for you. Help us to confess that need, Father. And then to watch you work, boasting in you, glorying in you as you move, not where we're strong, but where we're weak. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.